piece of, uh, and we were talking about it, but this is an opportunity. That's one reason why we have the kids in here for communion is we want to teach them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So um, we are almost done with our sermon series called The Journey, a series through the life of Abraham. We've been, uh, we started, I think around the beginning of October, and uh, we've got three more weeks uh, counting today, and, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up right before Christmas in our study of the life of Abraham. And what we've been learning together is that the journey of faith is not a solo endeavor. It's not you and Jesus on this lifelong adventure of faith. It's you and Jesus and the family of God, that we together are on a journey with Jesus like Abraham and Sarah and a whole host of people journeyed together in this land called Canaan. So what we want to do today, I want to encourage you to open up your Bible. So grab the Black Pew Bible that is in front of you and turn to page, let's see what page it is, page 15. Turn to page 15. We're actually going to be covering a pretty big uh, chunk of scripture today, so uh, we don't have it up on the screen, uh, and we're going to try to try to work through it a little bit differently today. The title of today's sermon is Faithfulness of God, Volume 2. I recently watched uh, on a, many of you know that my, my dad has been diagnosed with cancer, and so I uh, flew down a couple of weeks ago to Atlanta to be with my parents and watched The Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. And I don't know if you've seen that movie or not. You don't have to have seen the movie for this to make sense. But he has this mixtape, uh, and uh, it's, it's a mixtape called Volume 2, where he listens to his second batch of greatest hits from his favorite decade. And it's, it's, kind of like a, it's kind of like a sequel. It's kind of like a repeat. It's some of the same classics from before, but with a fresh spin on them. As we have been exploring Abraham's life, we have seen the faithfulness of God on display on nearly every occasion. So I decided to call this particular sermon, The Faithfulness of God, Volume 2. Now before we dive into the text, before we read it, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever walked through difficult times? In like really difficult times. Perhaps it stems from sinful choices that you have made, as we saw with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah last week. Or perhaps it's simply the result of living in a fallen world, as in my dad's cancer diagnosis. Either way, we've all embarked upon a journey characterized by suffering. For many of us, it can be challenging to maintain our faith in God during those dark days. And for many of us, those experiences shake us perhaps more than we'd like to admit. And on our outside, we have this happy church face, but inside we're just a little bit shaken. The text before us reveals a number of episodes from the journey of Abraham. And in some of them, he does pretty good. In some of them, he does pretty bad. But in all of them, God is faithful. You see, when Abraham is up, when Abraham is down, when Abraham is good, when Abraham is evil, the one constant is the same. 
that God is relentlessly faithful to his people and to his promises. So what I want us to do today is to explore these true stories together and see what we can learn about the faithfulness of God. Because ultimately these stories are not about Abraham, they're stories about God. You've heard me say it once, hopefully you've heard me say it a million times, that God is the hero of every single story of the Bible. Okay? So these true stories are not just about Abraham, but they're about God. And in particular, these passages show us how relentlessly faithful he is to his people. So we're going to cover two chapters today. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach for like two hours or anything like that. Uh, but we are going to cover two chapters. So we're going to go at a kind of quick clip. I'm going to start uh, on page 15. So if you've got your pew Bible, we don't have the verses up on the screen today. I want you looking at your Bible in front of you. Uh, page 15, chapter 20. I'm going to read the whole chapter, then we're going to talk about it. It says, from there, that's from the region where Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. From there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev, and he settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was staying in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife, Sarah. She's my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You are about to die because of the woman you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it is innocent? Didn't he himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. Early in the morning, Abimelech got up, called all of his servants together, and personally told them all these things, and the men were terrified. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, What have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such enormous guilt on me and on my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech also asked Abraham, what made you do this? Abraham replied, I thought there is absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me. He's my brother. Then Abimelech took flocks and herds and male and female slaves, gave them to Abraham, and returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Look, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, Look, I'm giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so that they could bear children. For the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, if you're reading this story and you're having a feeling of deja vu, that's good. Because something very similar happened to Abraham back, uh, I think it was in chapter 13. 13, 14, somewhere in there. End of 12, right? End of 12. There you go. So, Abraham, in the previous instance, he had gone down into Egypt, and he lied. God preserved him. God got him out of that jam. God was faithful to him in spite of his sin, but there in Egypt, 
Abraham sowed some consequences of his sin, and he came back. That's most likely where Hagar, his Egyptian servant, comes from. The, the woman that he would be immoral with later on in his journey, later on in this story. All because, way back when, Abraham struggles with believing God. He struggles with doubt. Here, the story is a little bit different, but almost entirely the same. This time, he doesn't leave the promised land. He doesn't leave Egypt. He stays in the region that God had promised him. But he goes and he hangs out in the, uh, in the kingdom of this guy called Abimelech. And he says, look, uh, Sarah, you are, you are beautiful, and I know the king will take you for himself, so just say that you are my sister. It was kind of half true. Um, they shared one parent. Uh, people did things like that back then. It was, it was different from our modern culture, but in the ancient Near East, that was pretty normal. Um, and, and so he's like, look, you're my half-sister, so just, you know, tell people you're my sister. Um, and he basically throws her under the bus, just like he did back in chapter 12. So the king takes her. The king brings her into his harem. But he's not yet done anything sexually with her because all of a sudden he's haunted by this dream. Now, uh, we're approaching the Christmas season where many of us might uh, read or watch uh, Scrooge and the, the Christmas story, right? And, and there are these hauntings, these dreams in the night. Uh, and Charles Dickens talks about the, the ghost of Christmas past and the ghost of Christmas present and the ghost of Christmas future, right? And there's these, these spectacular dreams and visions that happen in the night. That's exactly what happens to Abimelech in this story. He encounters God in his dream, and God says, don't you dare touch that woman. He's like, I didn't know. I just thought she was this person, this beautiful woman, and so I decided to exercise power as king over her. It's not really much of a defense, but he's, he's trying. He's, he's trying to do his best. Say, I didn't know she was married. And God says, look, I, I understand that you didn't know that she was married, so I'm not going to entirely curse you. You did this more or less with a clear conscience, but you must return the man's wife. He says, Abraham is a prophet. So in the morning, Abimelech gets up and he, he tells people in his court what's going on, and all the men are terrified. And we, we read from later on in the story that every single woman in the palace has been cursed with infertility. And there is, there is no one in the palace able to bear children. It was like the king had, had uh, built up a harem, right? And in those ancient cultures, fertility was a sign of power and significance and blessing. And so the more sons and daughters, especially sons, that was the way it worked back then, the more sons the king could have, the more powerful he would look. And all of a sudden, he can't have any sons. He can't have any children, period. Why? Because he has dared to reach out and touch a family that God blessed. Now, is Abraham making a good decision here? No, he's not. He's lying. He's putting his, his wife's honor and her health at incredible risk. But God is faithful in spite of it. Why? Because way back in chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham. Back then he was called Abram. And he said, Abram, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. And I'm going to give you a blessing. And he specifically says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. This is, this is a little bit of that promise being fulfilled. Abimelech, in essence, curses the chosen family. And so the royal palace is cursed. 
doesn't make what Abraham did right. doesn't make Abraham's actions morally justified. But God has obligated himself to this man. I don't know if you remember, but way back when we started this series, we talked about how right before God calls out Abraham, there's this list of 70 different tribes, 70 different families. And God picks one of those tribes, one of those families to offer salvation to the other 69. That through Abraham would come the blessing of salvation for the entire world. And so God has chosen Abraham. He has obligated himself to bless Abraham, no matter how jacked up the situation gets. And Abraham's situation has been pretty jacked up. You remember Hagar a few chapters ago? This has been really jacked up. It's been really messed up. But God has made a promise. And the Bible says that God is not a liar. It says, let, let God be true and every man a liar because he keeps his promises. God is relentlessly faithful to his people. And he's faithful here to Abraham and Sarah. They mess up. They sin. They fail. They do almost the exact same thing they did in Egypt. And yet again, God blesses them. They walk out of this situation with more stuff, with more servants. Like by, by the reckoning of the day, they came out of this the clear winners. Been like, like, look, here's some silver. Here's some, here's some stuff. Take all of this and just get out of here. Like, you're going to go out richer, Abraham and Sarah, more, more wealthy than when you came in. Now, we can be tempted to read that and say, well, sounds like it worked out. The blessing of God, right? And a lot of us, if we're not careful, we equate your wealth and your health and the success of your life. As, and we say that that's evidence that you're walking with God. But that would be a misreading of this story. Because what happens here is that God is blessing Abraham, not because of Abraham, but in spite of Abraham. God is blessing Abraham because he made a promise in chapter 12, and God makes promises that he always keeps. And God is cursing Abimelech because God made a promise in chapter 12, and when God promises to curse you, he curses you. And there's no getting out of it. You know, God had a plan. He had a plan that he's orchestrating. As I mentioned, it's a plan that's bigger than Abraham. Sometimes when we read these stories, we can just get caught up in the minutia of, of this one family story. Right? There's Abraham and later there'll be Isaac, Jacob and Joseph and, and then David and Solomon and all of these different figures especially throughout the Old Testament. And we can get lost in some of those details and some of those stories and, and zero in on them to the exclusion of the bigger story. But there's something significant going on here. Before we did this series, The Journey, we preached on Genesis 1 through 11. We talked about our roots as human beings. We talked about where we came from. And we talked about this sense of brokenness that the human race has been experiencing ever since we got kicked out of the garden. And so what God does through Abraham is not just offer salvation to a couple, not just promise a child to a, an infertile couple. That would be an amazing enough story, but it's far bigger, far deeper, far richer than that. This 
is God's plan of redemption to offer salvation to every human being. This is God's plan of redemption to bring humanity back to the garden, back to the presence of God, back to that which was lost in Genesis chapter 3. God has picked this family, but it's not about the family. It's not about Abraham and Sarah and, and Ishmael that, that Abraham had with Hagar and Isaac that he's about to have. It's not about them. It is about God orchestrating this plan from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 to get his people back into the garden. There's a guy named Philip Yancey. He says the whole story of the Bible can be summed up in one phrase, and it's this. Jesus gets his family back. That's a pretty fair way. I mean, you could say there's some other things, but for the most part, the story of the Bible is Jesus gets his family back, and he leads us into the presence of God. All of that is at stake here, though, because the promised son, the one that God said, you're going to have a son, and through him, the Messiah, the hero, the liberator is going to come through your son. And Abraham puts all of that at risk by sending his wife into a harem to some other man where she could potentially become pregnant, where she could potentially be killed or or forever imprisoned. There's nothing about this that's good. And it's not just Sarah that's at stake in this moment. It is God's entire promise. It is God's entire plan. From a human perspective, redemption hangs by a thread. And it's like, oh man, is God really going to be able to restore the world? Is he really going to be able to lead us back to paradise? Will Eden ever be recovered? Will we experience that communion with God that Adam and Eve had in the garden? Or is this it? Are we about to trade it all away? See, sometimes we don't think on that kind of deep level. We're just thinking about, well, here's how, here's how Sarah would have felt. Here's how Abraham would have felt. And I'm sure they felt a certain kind of way. And I'm sure they had a very interesting conversation after all of this was over. But it was far, far bigger than them. This was about the future of humanity. This was about the future of God's promises. And God shows himself to be faithful. He preserves Sarah so that she is not touched sexually. And she is preserved for her husband so that God can keep a promise that he made in chapter 12. Way back before, Abraham and Sarah had done a lot of messed up sinful things. But God has made a promise. And the story of Abraham's life, this journey shows us that God is relentlessly faithful to his people, even when, maybe especially when, we don't deserve it. Now let's keep going. Let's look at chapter 21. I'm going to read the first seven verses. There on page 15, the Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, 
God has made me laugh. And everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. It's interesting. The promise had just been in jeopardy in chapter 20. The plan of redemption had just been threatened. As Sarah is often some hero of civilization. But as soon as God extricates them from that situation, the very next thing that we're told is that God opens Sarah's womb. And that as an elderly woman, she is able to conceive a child with her husband, Abraham. And they have a son. And they name him Isaac. Why? We've talked a lot about the meaning and significance of names in these Old Testament stories. The name simply means laughter. You remember, I think it was Woodley preached on this uh, a couple of weeks ago, that, that God came to Abraham and Sarah, and they, at different points, they both laughed. They, they were like, yeah, okay, I hear your promise, but, you know, I'm really old. And they, they laugh at God, maybe chuckling under their breath or, or behind the curtain where, where they think God can't see. And God's like, all right, you're laughing at the idea of my... Miracle, you're laughing at the idea of my power and my promise. Here's what I'm going to do. You will name your son Isaac, which means laughter, so that every time you call him, you will remember my promise. You will remember your sin of doubt, but even more than that, you will remember my faithfulness in the midst of your sin. So that every time you look at your son and you think his name is Isaac, you will remember that God was faithful when you laughed. God was faithful when you doubted. God was faithful when you were not. And so they name him Isaac. And he's circumcised when he's eight days old. This is what God had promised. We talked about this in Genesis chapter 17, that God institutes this, this uh, sign of this covenant. It was circumcision. We, we talked about that and how, how part of the significance of it was to demonstrate that God is working a promise. And that through Abraham's seed, through Abraham's descendants, there is coming a hero. There is coming a liberator. But it was going to specifically be through Abraham and through Sarah, not Abraham and Hagar. So he circumcises them. And they're just kind of in amazement. They're like, man, we've been wandering in the promised land for like 25 years. And God finally came through. We've had a lot of highs and a lot of lows. A lot of mountaintop experiences and a lot of, a lot of terrible valleys. We've, we've seen the promise threatened in, in uh, Egypt. Picked up a slave that almost ruined the whole thing because of our sin, not because of hers. We, we, we messed up with the Bimelites and, and we saw the promise threatened there. We saw we had to go to war to rescue our, our nephew, Lot. We had to do battle with him. We saw this, this weird covenant thing that God did with, with animals that he cut in two and he split them apart. And, and then we saw, saw Abraham sin with Hagar. And we saw that Hagar conceived a child named Ishmael. We have seen a lot of life in these two plus decades of wandering as nomads in the promised land. This land that God said, Abraham, this land is your land. They have seen a lot. 
They have laughed. They have cried. They have believed. And they have doubted. Much like we do. You know, I've, I've come to learn in my life that faith is not a 100% either or proposition. Like, you either have faith or you don't. It's just kind of like a continuum, right? Like the lady that came to Jesus. Maybe it was a man. But a person that said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm believing. I'm wanting to believe. But I still have some element, some mixture of doubt in there. I think that's how Abraham and Sarah lived for 25 years. They have seen everything that you could imagine. And now, now, God makes a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman have a child. That should stagger us. In fact, Hebrews 11, though, says that they weren't staggered by the promises of God. They believed. And God counted to them for righteousness. And in this moment, they see their son is born. And they understand. The Bible says in Galatians that God had preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. They understand at least something of the significance of this child. They know that it's not just about them and their happiness as a, as a mom and a dad, but that it's bigger. This is about the salvation of humanity. This is about the rolling back of the curse. This is about restoring creation. And so they rejoice. You know, all is not well in their extended family, in their tribe. Because there's another child that's already been born. Hagar and Abraham, if you recall, they had Ishmael. And so now you've got two sons. Ishmael is considerably older. He's, I think, a teenager by now. And Isaac is young. Isaac is the son of the promise. But there's this other son here. There's this blended family. There's this mixed up situation and it causes friction. Look at verse 8. It says the child, that is Isaac, grew and was weaned and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking the one Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son. For the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. This was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And I will also make a nation of the slave's son because he is your offspring. Early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance about a bush out of way. For she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy up and grasp his hand for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well. She went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy. He grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, it's going to seem a little weird and a little disconcerting to us. There's this 
there's this power struggle in this ancient family. Sarah is jealous. She doesn't want Ishmael around anymore. Ishmael apparently is mocking the young Isaac, and so Sarah's like, let's get rid of this guy. Abraham, as you might understand, is bothered by that idea. He's like, look, I know it wasn't what we were supposed to do, but this, this is my flesh and blood. I don't want to kick him out of the camp. And God comes and he says, look, it's all right. Isaac is the chosen one. Isaac is the promised one. I have, I have picked him to be the line through whom Messiah will come. But I will also bless Ishmael because it's good. And so they go out into the, to the desert. Hagar feels like they're going to die. They're running out of water. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appears to them, much as happened in chapter 16. And God hears him, just as God did in chapter 16. It's interesting, the same word is used when God hears him. And she said, in chapter 16, she said, God hears, and God sees, and God saves. Here, again, God hears, and God sees, and God saves. And what does he say? Does he say, Ishmael, you're now the chosen one? No, no, what he said. He say, Ishmael... You, you now uh, are going to be you know, the ruler in this country I'm setting up called Israel? No, he doesn't get any of those blessings. But you know what he does get? God promises that he's going to take care of him, that he's going to grow, and he's going to have uh, many descendants. He says, I will make him a great nation. Now why? Is it just because God loves this teenage boy named Ishmael? No. God has made a promise to Abraham. Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. He obligates himself to Abraham and to Abraham's people. This is why God worked so hard to take care of Lot. Lot was like really jacked up in the city of Sodom. But God has made a promise to Abraham and to Abraham's family. And so in spite of their sinfulness, in spite of their failings, in spite of their flaws, God is relentlessly faithful. And so what he does is the angel of the Lord shows up and intervenes on behalf of Hagar and Ishmael for Abraham's sake. And really, because God's character and God's honor is at stake. Because God has made a promise. And there has never yet been a promise that God made that God hasn't it's almost like God is a boxer, and God has backed himself into the corner, right? And that's exactly what he does with Abraham. He backs himself into a corner where he's got no way out except to come out swinging. He's got no other choice because he has obligated himself to this family, not for this family's sake. Abraham is not blessed for Abraham's sake. Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. The people of God are blessed to bring salvation to humanity. And so God comes in mercy and grace to Hagar and to Ishmael to demonstrate that God is relentlessly faithful to his people. Now, the last section of text, let's look at verse 22. It says, at that time, Abimelech, accompanied by Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. 
Swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or with my children and descendants as I have been loyal to you. So you will be loyal to me and to the country where you are a resident alien. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech replied, I don't know who did this thing. You didn't report anything to me, so I hadn't heard about it until today. Abraham took flocks and herds and gave them to Abimelech, and two of them made a covenant. Abraham separated seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech said to Abraham, Why have you separated these seven ewe lambs? He replied, You are to accept the seven ewe lambs from me, so that this act will serve as my witness that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because it was there that the two of them swore an oath. After they'd made a covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, left and returned to the land of the Philistines. So Abimelech, the same guy from earlier, wants to make a treaty, a peace treaty with Abraham. He says, you know, I realize and I recognize that the hand of God is upon me. And it's pretty clear to me that God is blessing you and cursing the people that are opposed to you. So I'm going to be on the right side of history. <laughs> Abimelech's like, can we make a peace treaty? Can we be friends? And so Abraham's like, okay, sure. And so they make a peace treaty. And they do it with these weird ancient customs that we don't entirely seem familiar with. But, but Abraham makes a peace treaty with Abimelech. And as a result of this, Abimelech is blessed. Why? Because God made a promise to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. You see, the common thread in each of these stories each of these narratives from Abraham's life is the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to Abraham as he forms this alliance with Abimelech. Was Abimelech a good dude? I have no idea. Probably not. Most of the people around back then weren't. Abraham kind of stuck out. He was a little bit unique. But Abraham enters into this peace treaty, into this covenant, into this relationship with Abimelech. And God blesses Abraham with safety as a result of it. And he blesses Abimelech too. Because God is relentlessly faithful to his people. You know, the idea of God's relentless faithfulness to his people is something that you and I, I think, need to consider repeatedly. Now, hopefully everybody's got a response card. Um, so I want you to grab your response card now. We should have some next steps up on the screen the same next steps that are on your card. So I want you to look at your response card. I want to propose a few different responses to this sermon. First, I want to suggest that maybe we should trust in the faithfulness of God, even during difficult times. I will trust in a faithful God, even during difficult times. I don't know whether you would characterize your life as difficult right now. Um, in many ways, it seems that, that ours is. Um, as my, uh, my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer last Monday. And as that has rocked our world, we've had to come, grip, come face to face with the reality that God is relentlessly faithful to his people. He's relentlessly faithful to all of his people. God is a relentlessly good and gracious God. So for some of us, that's the box that we need to check. We need to say, you know what? I will trust 
and a faithful God even during difficult times. The second one that I want to suggest is that maybe you just need to worship. You need to celebrate. I will celebrate God's faithfulness in orchestrating a beautiful plan of redemption. What God did through Abraham and through Sarah, what God is doing through, through us, it, it is a masterpiece of beauty that in spite of Abraham and Sarah, in spite of their mess, God did something beautiful to bring about the redemption of the human race. That is worth celebrating. That is worth getting on our knees and worshiping God and giving thanks for. So maybe that is your response to a text like this. Or maybe third, I'd suggest that we work together to spread the good news of this plan of redemption. You see, Abraham was blessed. Why? To be a blessing. Why have we been blessed as bearers of this good news, as heralds of this good news? Why have we been blessed with it? Why have we been included into the family of God? We have been blessed to be a blessing. To be heralds of this good news, like Abraham, on mission proclaiming this good news to our neighbors, to our family, to our coworkers, our friends. Those are three suggested next steps for you. Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in a totally different way. You want to jot something else down on the card. I'd encourage you to respond in some way to this sermon, some tangible way. And then later as we pass the offering basket, you can drop that card into the basket. But I want to conclude by looking at the last two verses of the chapter. So again, I don't have the verses on the screen, but on page 16, verses 33 and 34. It says that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham lived as an alien in the land of the Philippines for many days. It almost seems like an odd way to end this part of the story. Abraham becomes a farmer? Abraham plants a tree? Is, it, is he an environmentalist? What is he doing here? He plants a tamarisk tree, and he calls upon the name of God, and he lives as an alien. Abimelech had called him a resident alien living in the land of the Philistines. Here's what's going on. God had told Abraham, hey, Abraham, one day you're going to have this land. One day you're going to inherit all of this geographical domain. This is your spot, the soil upon which you stand. It is yours. So what Abraham is doing, even though he's not in possession of the land, even though he kind of he owns the, 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 the deed, but he doesn't, he doesn't have it yet. Like the people there aren't going to let him run the place yet. So he's like, I'm going to demonstrate a long-term commitment, a long-term faith in the God who has granted me this land. I am going to plant a tree. Now, Abraham is 100 years old. He's probably not going to be around to see that tree become a, a, a mighty, towering tree one day. But that's not the point. The point is that he lives in, as a resident alien in a land that has been promised to him. It's not his yet. But he demonstrates his faith in the promise by planting a tree. And by calling upon the name of God and saying, God, I know that you're coming. I know that you're going to give me this land. You have promised it to me. So I'm going to plant a tree. I'm going to have a long-term faith that does something good in this world in the meantime. 
and I'm going to call upon your name even as I live as a, as a resident alien. It's kind of like the idea of, a, of an immigrant in another country. Some of you are immigrants. You're here. You've got a visa. You're a resident alien is, would be the term from this chapter. You live in a land, but it's not your homeland. Abraham lives in this land, but it's not his homeland. It's a land that's been promised to him, but he doesn't have possession of it quite yet. But he will. And so he plants a tree. There's a, uh, there's a statement that comes from the Lutheran church back during World War II in their resistance to Nazi Germany. As the church was trying to struggle to figure out how to stand up to Hitler, what do they, what do, they do? How's the German church supposed to stand up to Hitler? They, uh, they invented this, this statement. Many people attribute it to Martin Luther. He didn't really say this, but most likely it comes from the German church during the Nazi occupation. And they said, if I find out that the world ends tomorrow, I'm going to plant a tree today. And what they were doing is exactly what Abraham did in this text. They were signaling a long-term faith, a long-term commitment to tomorrow, to the hope that is coming. Because the, the church, under the oppression of Nazi Germany, under the oppression of the Nazi state, they understood that today looked bad. Tomorrow might look worse. But they could plant trees because their faith is not about today's circumstances or even about tomorrow's circumstances. It is a faith that is rooted in what is coming. For Abraham, what was coming was he was going to get this land because that's what God said. For you and I, in the church in Nazi Germany back in World War II, for us, what's coming is the return of God. The return of Jesus Christ that we sang about in that song, the Most High God, that he is coming to reign forevermore. And so we face injustice. We see what's going on in our country and we scratch our heads and, 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 and we hurt and we grieve and we cry and we weep and we mourn. We see the struggles in our own church or in our own families. We see what's going on with my father. At every turn, we face unpleasant realities square in the face. But the beautiful thing about Christianity is that it doesn't try to put any of that under the rug. No, it puts it out all on full display and it says there is a hope for tomorrow and for the next day. So plant a tree and be a resident alien in the land because there's a kingdom that's coming. A kingdom that's coming in this Advent season. That's exactly what we do. We wait for a king. Now, we're remembering a king that was born in Bethlehem's manger. But because we live on this side of things, we, we don't just wait for a king in remembering that. We wait for the return of the king. You and I are awaiting a king. We plant trees in India. And we call upon the name of God. And we live as resident aliens in a land that, that one day we will inherit because the meek inherit the earth. But this world is not our home yet until God makes it our home. And so we live between the city that is and the city that's coming. We plant trees. We plant trees. Let's pray. Every eye closed, every head bowed.